Hello, and you're very welcome to the second episode of The Week That Really Was, a podcast hosted on Grip Media and presented by me, John McGurk, the editor of that platform. And I am joined this week, as I hope to regularly be, by David Quinn, um, public commentator and well-known voice. How are you, David? Good morning. Very well. How are you? I'm well. Uh, it's Friday morning, um, and it is the day after the government announced this week uh, and published finally the legislation which will make it a crime to engage in Ireland in hate speech. I was watching yesterday um, an interview on Virgin Media Television where the Minister for Health was courageously asked three questions. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it now? And what are the next steps? Uh, And I thought this morning that you and I might be able to provide a little bit more in-depth questioning and commentary of the proposal that's before us. So what was your reaction to it? Well, the Minister for Justice, indeed, Helen McEntee. Uh, so various reactions. I mean, one is, uh, as usual, the almost complete lack of political opposition to this move. In a healthy democracy, there would be opposition voices to this, rather than just a few isolated TDs here and there. And in fact, the party that should be offering the most opposition to it and the most questioning of it is the party that's most behind it, which is Helen McEntee's party, the Fine Gael party, because they're the ones who should be raising questions about the consequences of this for public debate and the freedom of people uh, to say what they want within the existing law, which is incitement to hatred and defamation laws. So we already have protections and there's almost nobody in favour of absolute free speech. Um, But there should be wide latitude given to it. And this is the sort of thing that Fine Gael should be saying, but no, we uh, we have Fine Gael who are the chief architects of this bill and Helen McEntee, who, by the way, um, an unnamed uh, Fianna Fáil, TD was quoted recently as saying, all woke and no action. He was referring to, um, uh, you know, the sort of thing that people want Justice Minister mainly be concerned about, which is crime on the streets, all right, and not passing pieces of legislation like this. And so uh, this piece of legislation has two purposes. One is, if if somebody is assaulted and um, the person carrying out the assault uh, um, seems to hate that person because of a characteristic like race or religion that is a protected characteristic, they will get a stiffer sentence than they might otherwise have done. Now, what this means is if somebody beats up David Quinn simply because he's David Quinn or they don't like to look at me or it's a random attack, they'll get sentence A. But if that same person beats me up because I'm, I'm, I'm a well-known public Catholic, they will get a stiffer sentence and I'm not absolutely convinced that that is necessarily the way to go, because, um, uh, again, if the person sees David Quinn or John McGurk and he hates David Quinn or John McGurk, but he doesn't hate us because of any particular characteristic we have, that's just kind of personal hatred. Why should that person get a lesser sentence than the person who hates us because we have some particular characteristic that's protected by the law that they also dislike? Uh, so that's so that's the first thing. Um, there was a fellow, actually, it was a few Christmases ago, and I was walking along Henry Street, and it was this particular fellow I recognised um, uh, from, I can't remember what events. Uh, and so I said to him, hello, happy Christmas. So he calls me an effing Catholic toe rag. He was a pretty tough-looking guy, so wondering, is the punch coming in? Uh, so my question is, should he have got a stiffer sentence if he punched me because of what he had first said? And you see, I already feel protected by law um, because if he punched me, that's against the law. 
And what he has said to me is probably some kind of form of harassment and intimidation, but it's also against the law. And when Helen McEntee was interviewed uh, last week in primetime, now she was being interviewed about um, the criminality and open drug market there is in O'Connell Street. Um, uh, this uh, quote by the, fin- by the unnamed Fianna Fáil TD about being all woke and no action was put to her. And, uh, you know, this hate crime legislation was mentioned. And she said, this has been brought in because people are being literally attacked every day. And I'm thinking again, we already have laws against assault. We already have laws against intimidation. We already have laws against harassment. So why do we need this additional law? And the answer seems to be because various of the usual left-wing NGOs are being lobbying for it and the government can never say no to them. You said um, you said something interesting there uh, in that you said you already feel protected by law. You said that mm. you don't you don't feel like you need an extra law. And I think that's an, a point that needs to be addressed head on here because the whole premise behind this legislation is that there are people in our society who simply aren't protected by existing law. That in some way, the law protects the middle class white man, i.e. you and me, more than it protects the um, queer brown person, to use the uh, to use the language of the moment, that somehow the law itself is institutionally racist and doesn't protect minorities and members of society who feel socially excluded in the same way that it protects um you know the the likes of, of you and I and i think that's absolute nonsense i think it is inherently a sort of racist proposition to suggest that in some way uh, minorities are not protected by our laws in the way that everybody else is i think it's a it's a very anti-irish statement to make because it's simply not true um, it is just as much of a crime as we see in our courts, sadly, every week to attack somebody, whether the attacker is white and the victim is black or gay, or whether the attacker is black or gay and the victim is white um, and straight. And I think the the premise that's being built here into the discussion is that somehow, um, you know, it's, 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 it's that essentially one group of people in society has too many rights. It's all based on this idea of privilege, that you and I are privileged relative to somebody from an immigrant background, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, and that therefore we must have fewer rights um, and our speech must be limited. And I I was reading a quote during the week, I want to read it back to you, uh, in which a very prominent Irish politician was quoting the poet Ella Wheeler Wilcox on the subject of free speech. And that politician said that Wilcox acknowledges the human race has climbed on protest. Had no voice been raised against injustice, ignorance and lust, the Inquisition would yet serve the law and guillotines our least disputes. But her solution was speech. She urged that the few who dare must speak and speak again and reminded us that speech should never be gagged or throttled. That was saying speech should never be gagged or throttled. The Taunishta and leader of Fine Gael Leo Varadkar four years ago. And today his political party is introducing <laughs> right. introducing a law specifically designed. And I mean, when I say specifically designed, I mean the explicit purpose of the law is to gag and throttle speech. It is to, in the words of, um, do you remember a couple of years ago, the country went gaga when Patty Bliss, uh, during the marriage referendum, stood up and said, in, in delivered her noble call, or his noble call, and said that, um, you know, when I cross a street, I check myself. When I go out from my 
my my building in the day. I check myself to make sure that I'm not causing offence to anybody. That's the that's the instinct that this law is supposed to impose. It's supposed to make you and me check ourselves before we say anything. You, but, yeah, but 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 you see again, um, the laws in place already stop intimidation or intended to and harassment. Never mind assault. Okay, now um, if we're supposed to be concerned about somebody's subjective state of mind. Well, then we're in a whole new ballgame. Now, this law, um, Helen McEntee is saying, is not intended to reduce it to a completely subjective feeling that I feel hated. All right. There's supposed to be some objective act as well. Um, although, again, um, how they're supposed to, if somebody punches someone, how they're supposed to necessarily know what's that person's state of mind uh, at that time, what exactly is the motivation, is a curious thing. Maybe they, they'll say something at the same time. Um, but this singling out of hatred of particular you know, characteristics as the particular motivation behind a crime that's supposed to be, receive an additional punishment. Um, many crimes in Ireland, as elsewhere, are motivated by things like greed and jealousy. All right, And in fact, there's been novels in Ireland written about plays like The Field, about somebody driven by greed and jealousy uh, to kill someone. Um, so this is, you know, a, a big motivator of crime, but it doesn't receive an additional penalty because it's felt that it's enough to punish the assault, never mind the murder, without this additional thing, uh, 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 you know, being thrown in. And some of the groups campaigning for this, um, you know, they do these opinion polls and these studies. And they'll ask people, have you been hated in the last year? More or less. And X number will say yes. And it's, again, based on this completely subjective state of mind. And, of course, we must do more in society to reduce, um, um, you know, racism, which undoubtedly exists in some quarters. But to repeat, I'm sorry to be belaboring the point, we already have laws against intimidation, harassment and assault. So why do we need to go further? And, of course, another aspect of the law isn't that we're going to add this additional penalty where there's assault based on hatred of a particular characteristic. There's also that they want to... Um, make it easier to convict people for saying certain things. Well, well even you, more worrying aspect. You you asked you, you you asked the question why why do we need an extra law? And the answer to why we need an extra law is the, the purpose of I, mean, I I'm a cynic. Um I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I am a cynic. And mm -hmm. the, the purpose of laws is 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 twofold. The speeding laws, for example, um they're they're not uniformly enforced you can you can drive along most motorways in ireland and speed and um not get caught that's just the reality most people who mm -hmm. speed will not be detected on a given day only mm -hmm. about one percent of the people who break speed limit be detected but the purpose of the law is to put that fear in your mind that you might be detected and i would argue that the purpose of hate speech laws is not to, I don't think we'll see a vast number of prosecutions. We'll see one or two uh, prosecutions to make the point. But the point that is to be made is to, is to deepen in society the reluctance to say or think certain things in public. So, for example, the, 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 the one I, I, I gripped wrote about in an editorial yesterday, which I think is, is, is the key one, is, is transgender issues. Uh, it, there are, I would put it to you that the, pro the proposition that in Ireland, uh, the vast majority of people do not agree with the statement that a man can have a baby. <laughs> no. I, I, you know, they, can't, they don't. Um, I, I don't think the majority of people um, agree with the statement a man can have a period. 
Yet those are things which transgender activists increasingly insist are true. And further, they insist that it is hateful not to uh, agree with those things. And so you have the situation that you had this week where you had a very eminent doctor, uh, one of the country's lead, leading gynecologists, in fact, in front of a Dáil committee saying that, uh, and I quote him directly, that for the first time we're now seeing men coming in to have babies. Um, now, I don't believe that doctor believes that to be true, but I think he believes firmly that were he to not publicly state that he believes that to be true, there will be negative consequences for both his career and his standing in polite society. And when you when you talk about what the purpose of the hate speech law is, the purpose of the hate speech law is much like the laws against heresy in Reformation Europe, uh, where there was officially freedom of conscience, but of course you had to be very careful about it in case you found yourself in front of an inquisition or, a, or something of that nature. Um, the purpose is to make you uh, terrified and careful about what you say in public. Uh, and in that mm -hmm. sense, to clear the field of political debate for one side. Or constrict that's, it. That's um, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's obviously speech that is genuinely unacceptable. So, um, you know, proper incitement to hatred where you are trying to incite a mob to attack a particular group, where you use genuinely derogatory remarks about particular groups. We know the sort of words uh, which don't need to be said and shouldn't be said and are almost never said um, uh, to, you know, to describe particular races and groups. Um, but uh, like I was writing in my Sunday Times column there in the summer when um, uh, I think it was the heads of this legislation had been published or something. And uh, I was looking back to the presidential election of a few years ago when the member Peter Casey got into trouble because of remarks he made about travellers. And what did he say? They're, they're people who just um, settle on other people's, uh, who sit on other people's land or something like that. And there's a big outcry about it. And Pave Point was insisting that he be charged with incitement to hatred, which obviously didn't happen. And of course, Helen McIntyre is thinking that because, our, because she hasn't specifically instanced him, but our incitement to hatred legislation isn't strong enough. So my question is, what happens if a Peter Casey says something like that again? Or do you remember Noel Grealish, um, the independent TD, isn't he Galway? got into trouble a few years ago because he was suggesting that some of the money being sent um, by Nigerians to Nigeria might be illegal money obtained through fraud, for example. And then, and then, sorry, I want to interrupt you there. Mm. This literally over the last two weeks, we learned that um, hundreds of millions of euro have been sent to Nigeria by the Black Axe crime gang. It was one yeah. of the main news stories. So, so Grealish was right, even though he was condemned, or right at least in part, even though he was widely condemned at the time. But so, I, uh, so, sorry, so, 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 sorry, John. So, if, if Noel Grealish said that post the passage of this law outside the doll, what would happen to him? And this is a really important, serious question because, as you say, he was actually correct. And this Black Axe gang you mentioned, this actually hasn't got as much coverage as it ought to have got because of the essential dishonesty that's at the heart of much Irish debate. And I suspect that this law is going to add a further layer of dishonesty to the debate. And again, the right questions are not being asked by the very people who should be asking the question, which is Irish journalists. They're asking very soft questions about it, what he was saying at the top of the show, uh, instead of critical questions about it. So when the journalists are not concerned about the effect of a law like this on public debate, then you've got to really start worrying. I um 
I, I agree with you completely. And I just, I think, I think we we don't need to talk about this all the way through the podcast. But there are other things we want to talk mm. about. But I want to, I want to make the other opportunities. I want to make one point before we move on, which is that you said something there about how there were certain words that are not said and should not be said and, and would never be said. Um, and I would make the point in response to that that those words are not said and should not be said, and you don't hear them, not because of any law. There is no law in, in this country against using the N-word on the radio mm. to describe mm. black people. Mm. We don't do it. Why don't mm. we do it? Um, it is because society polices itself in a normal and natural way, mm. um, whereby if you are abusive, if you are deliberately hateful, if you are somebody who, to the vast majority of people's ears, is saying something that is inciting racial prejudice or homophobic prejudice, uh, if you call people um, horrible words for being homosexual, for example, you will not get anywhere. Mm -hmm. people, people, people will reject it. So this law isn't actually about dealing with people who, who use those words because society already has its own way of dealing with them. The mm -hmm. intent of this law is actually not to suppress words or, or abuse. It is to suppress ideas. It's the ideas that are hateful. It's the idea that a man, men and women are two separate sexes. It's not the words you use to describe somebody. If somebody uses an offensive word for a transgender person, uh, that's not the problem. The problem is the idea that they aren't who they say they are. That's that's what's that's what's perceived. Yeah, and, and, and you see, you know, here's a question for uh, for our justice minister. That really ought to be asked, and it's not going to be asked by journalists. But then, if somebody in the doll ask it, um, um, when this law passes, as it will, uh, with almost no opposition, um, what does she think should happen to a Peter Casey who makes a statement like that in the future? What does she think should happen to an old Grealish if he makes that statement outside the doll in the future? And an example I sometimes use as well is Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist and scientist, a few years ago said, Islam is the greatest force for evil in the world today. I don't believe that, by the way. Jihadism is a great force for evil. That's a different story. But if Richard Dawkins said that in um, uh, an Ireland where this law had been passed, what would happen to him? Now, these are questions that Helen McEntee uh, should be asked. And she would probably say something like, oh, I can't judge what the law will say in advance. Well, really, you don't know what the effect of your law is going to be. You mean you haven't thought it through properly. You mean this is a type of very dangerous virtue signaling that you're engaged in. But if she hasn't thought that through, and if she doesn't know the answer, she should be let next, next nor near a law like this. Well, um, But certainly the questions which ought to be asked. Well, look, the good news is, David, the good news is that anybody who watches the Irish courts will know that if hate speech is punished, as so-called hate speech, so so-called hate speech is punished just as severely as, say, use a random example, the possession of child pornography, nobody will ever go to jail, and we don't need to worry. Because and of course, you're referring there to the fact that you have specific examples, don't you? Of very yeah, soft sentencing. Oh, this week, this week mm. there was a man with twenty-eight thousand images, including children as young as three being uh, raped. Uh, who yeah, received a suspend, suspended sentence. Anyway, look, we'll move on. There's an opinion poll in the Irish Times this week which uh, shows uh, basically no movement on the political front. Um, but does show, I think, which is interesting uh, to compare to the public narrative, that the public are on my side on the, 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 the war in Ukraine and that they think we should stand with Ukraine 
to the very end, um, possibly even if it means nuclear war. No, that's, the, no, no, I'm not saying that, but we'll come back to that. I'm saying that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're, they're almost with me. Um, mm. But uh, they're they're not really with the government on this issue or this commitment that we can take, in the words of some of our ministers, uh, as many people who want to come. Yeah. So during the week, um, I was uh, tweeting about this, and uh, you know, just saying we need to ask questions about um, how many can be managed at any one time. And this is one of these forbidden questions, and this kind of worries me, therefore, about so-called hate speech legislation. And Saoirse McHugh, the Green, who left the Greens because they're not green enough, um, denounces me as the most unchristian person um, on this platform. It was more than that. So I was mm. going to, inter- I meant to introduce you this way at the start mm. of the podcast, because I am joined with the person with the meanest, cruelest, and most callous opinions in Ireland. Yeah. How can I be mean and cruel when I grow up, David? What was what's your secret? <laughs> um, it's just I'm a bad seed, John. The way I was born. Um, but it turns out that okay, so the Irish Times poll out today, sixty one percent. The statement is put to them. Um, are you concerned? There's too many refugees coming here, and sixty one percent say yes. Um, only thirty six percent agree with the statement that Ireland should accept any number of Ukrainian refugees. So in other words, most are concerned that maybe there should be a limit because maybe there's only so many we can cope with. Now, you see, this is a reasonable question. It's a reasonable concern. Um, I wrote uh, very early on in the war um, about this issue for the Sunday Times. And I was, so the government at that point was saying, by the way, we may have to take in 200,000. And this was based on some kind of a projection that 10 million refugees would leave Ukraine and Ireland had to take its population share, uh, which Simon Coveney was saying was 2% of the EU population. So uh, 2% of 10 million is 200,000. But the first thing I pointed out was actually Ireland has 1% of the EU's population. So if 10 million left, it would mean we get 100,000. But then I asked the EU itself, um, are we obliged to take in a particular population share? And the answer is no, you're not obliged to take in any share. Um, you do have to have your borders open the same way, let's say, it would be the Polish people coming in. Um, but you don't necessarily have to provide, um, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, now, I was saying in this column, Ireland ought to take in as many as it can. That If we have a mature government, it ought to calculate what that number is. Look at available accommodation. Look at hotel rooms. Everything else they can possibly look at. Um, maybe setting up special refugee centres and say, we think we can cope with this number. And the number could be 50,000 or it could be 100,000. But to calculate what the number is and then broadcast it. So instead, we have the absolutely ridiculous situation where the government keeps on saying, we're going to take in any number we can. No, any number, full stop. Uh, Egged on all the way uh, by all the media presenters and all and all the journalists who just don't ask realistic questions about this sort of stuff. But now we have um, um, Roderick O'Gorman this week saying, actually, you know what, I'm not sure how many more we can take in and maybe Ukrainians coming here just need to be aware of that. So suddenly we've hit a kind of a cap, but they hadn't the nerve to say anything in advance. And then we had the Ukrainian ambassador saying this week, it's a disgrace that some of them are having to essentially sleep on the street because we weren't realistic enough, we weren't grown up enough to say, actually, this is the number we can cope with. And we can't cope with anything more than that until we build more accommodation. Well, my take on all of this is that, first of all, it's terrible to see Roderick O'Gorman falling to the 
to the to the terrible depths of far right rhetoric as he is in saying that we just can't take as many people as want to come. Because two weeks ago, David, that was a far right statement, and now it's official policy being articulated by a Green Party minister. Mm-hmm. It's important to. It's always fascinating how quickly things go from being far right extremism to sensible mainstream commentary in this country. Mm-hmm. But secondly, it always strikes me with stuff like this that. You know, Ireland is unique in its its failure to plan. We said we'd take 200,000. Everything you said is correct. There was no planning. There was no real effort to make it happen in that, you know, I, I actually personally know people who offered rooms in their homes to ref- to Ukrainian refugees um, as they were encouraged to do back in March mm-hmm. and who still haven't heard, still mm. haven't been, been even vetted by this government or its agencies to see whether their accommodation will be suitable. Uh, and these are not people now who, who, who these are people who will be very suitable. These are not people who mm-hmm. you know are offering a farm shed out the back to somebody. They're, they're mm. people with families and kids who are lucky enough to have a spare room who offered a room and weren't weren't approached. And it strikes me that the reason for that incompetence, and there's no other word for it, is that when Simon Coveney said we might have to take two hundred thousand refugees, he wasn't actually thinking we're going to take two hundred thousand refugees. He was thinking. Ireland is going to send a message that it will take as many people as need come because Ireland is a great country and this is what we do. But that was never what was supposed to happen. What was supposed to happen was that the war would start, uh, it would be over quite quickly, one way or the other, there'd be peace talks, maybe 20,000 people would come to Ireland over the summer, we'd all wave our little blue and yellow flags, we'd welcome them into our villages, then the war would be over, they'd go home, and once again, as usual, as is the national character, we would clap ourselves on the back and say, well, Dorn, aren't we great? Weren't we better than all those other countries? Um, that's that's what we do in Ireland. And that is how we govern. We govern on this basis of um, we're the best little country in the world and we, we're, we're going to offer to do more than anyone else can possibly do uh, to show how good we are, but it's okay because we won't have to do it. And this time, unfortunately, the war has called their bluff. Because it's still going on and people are still coming, and all of a sudden they realise that Gawcade Mila Falcha is actually Kega Hooked Mila Falcha is as many Falchas as we can offer. That's that's I think what's happened. Um, uh, something else that um in the madhouse of social media, I think, from among the general public, because again, if Twitter was was a representative of public opinion, then it wouldn't be thirty six percent agreeing with the statement. Um. Ireland should accept any number. It would be about 90% would agree with the statement, Ireland should accept any number. So again, we can forget uh, to what an extent um, Twitter is a very unrepresentative echo chamber uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of essentially left-wing opinion uh, with a few um, um, you know, dissident voices like you and me and this, and this show. Um, but uh, so a question you can't ask, um, why is Ireland per capita got more Ukrainians than any other West, uh, West European country I can see according to the UN figures. So France, so we have 5 million people and about 55,000 Ukrainian refugees. France is 60 million people and about 120,000 Ukrainian refugees. Sweden um, has 10 million people and fewer refugees there than we have. So I don't know what's going on there because Sweden, until very recently, had a reputation for being a very generous country. But all these other countries as well in Western Europe who are not known for being benighted places don't have as many per capita, or even um, in absolute terms as we do, even though they have bigger populations. So, I, I mean, I'm just genuinely curious about this. There might be an extremely good reason for it. 
But it's a reasonable question to ask. Well, I suppose, ask I suppose the obvious reason is that, um, you know, and I'm, first of all, I should say I, I broadly agree with your, your, your view on this, but the obvious reason would be that we're an English-speaking country. Um, and that I presume, like in most countries in the world, that English is the most widely taught second language in Ukraine, and therefore an English-speaking country is more attractive than a Swedish or a, a French-speaking country, perhaps. Um, I think that only explains a small part of it, to be uh, honest. The other, the other explanation I was going to offer is that we are, of course, next door to the United Kingdom, which, for very good reasons, is regarded uh, by Ukraine as the best country in the world that isn't Ukraine because of all that the Conservative government has done to to supply that country with weapons and aid since the war began. And probably the, you know there are a lot of people who are coming in that direction who end up coming to Ireland. Um, and thirdly, um, I would suggest that in terms of what Ireland is doing for Ukraine, the high number of refugees and our, our military neutrality is probably not unconnected in that France has the ability to say to the Ukrainian government, well, look, we... We can't take that many refugees, but we are offering you um, Caesar artillery systems, which is what you want more anyway, because the Ukrainian government, remember, doesn't actually want its people to leave. It wants to win the war and it wants military aid. And therefore, it's getting that from Germany and France and Italy and Spain and all these other countries, whereas Ireland is, of course, better than all those other countries who engage in grubby things like war. And therefore, um, all we can do is take refugees. Um, and so, you know, we're 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 not we don't have any leverage with the Ukrainian government to say or as, as, sorry, as the Irish government sees it, we don't have leverage to say, well, actually, we can only take a certain number. I don't think that's how it works, though, John. Um, because of, uh, as far as I know, the EU rule is um, uh, um, Ukrainians can come into any EU country in the same terms that the, uh, a person from another EU country can come in. So, for example, Poles and Latvians and Lithuanians. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what's happening in a place like France that it has so few. Um, but as so far as I know, officially, France is not allowed to say no, uh, unless they pass a special law, which, by the way, I think Denmark has done. But I don't think France has done that. So I don't know if France has simply said... Um, we're only going to provide accommodation for, for this many, and the rest of you will have to find your own accommodation the same way a Pole coming to Ireland would, or France. So it might be something like that. But you see, the two of us are only speculating. It's the sort of thing that uh, we ought to know, and that ought to be covered, and that politicians ought to be saying. So we have uh, um, not speculative reasons, but the actual reasons as, but, as to why this is happening. And by the way, there could be an extremely good, entirely defensible reason for it. But I'd you, like to know it. And the question should not be forbidden. You you say it ought to be asked. It will never be asked. You will. I, you can watch RTE News now on a loop beginning today and ending on the day of your death if you're 10 years old. Um, you can watch it for the next 80 years and you will never hear that question asked ever at any stage because no. any, any media coverage of any story which is likely to make the Irish people to question why is my government doing this when other countries aren't doing it will never be covered. Um, that is just the, the reality of the country we live in. Um, you could, if you want to find out how many refugees are in France, um, you need to look somewhere that isn't RTE. Um, that is just the reality of the situation. And the same goes for Virgin Media and the same, unfortunately, goes for a lot of our main newspapers as well. And, and a new opinion poll um, showing that, you know, 61% are concerned um, that there's too many coming here compared to what we can actually manage and accommodate. That opinion poll will be forgotten by um, six o'clock this evening, basically. Well, it's not, and a, it's not a new, mentioned again. It's not a new figure. I mean, we had we had opinion polls over the summer. 
Um, there was one in, uh, I think, the Sunday Times. Um, and I might be wrong on that, but there was definitely at least one opinion poll over the summer in a major reputable newspaper which showed the exact same phenomenon. Mm. Mm. Uh, the number, I think it wasn't as high as 61%, but certainly a majority of the public felt that we were taking um, more people than we were physically able to accommodate. And I mean, that's true. I mean, I just want to know, I really do want to know, because I think it's important to address these things head on, what Micheál Martin would say to an Irish homeless family who've been trying to find a home for five, seven, eight, ten years and can't find one, who've been shunted from hotel room to hotel room uh, because of our housing crisis. How, what he would say to those people if they said to him, Michal, I f- feel like a second-class citizen in my own country. Now, I am as pro-Ukraine as anyone in Ireland. And, and I, I, I Which think is true, yes. Uh, yeah. Like, like I, I, I'm in favour. I, I think the West has an obligation to Ukraine to help it resist an invading army and to aid it, and I think Putin's aggression has to be resisted. But in terms of our domestic policy, it seems to me to be objectively a statement of fact that the government is more interested in providing accommodation to people fleeing that war than it has ever been uh, during its period in office uh, in providing accommodation to Irish homeless people. There are efforts being made today that were never made when we had 20,000 people in this country in 2017 or 2018 who couldn't find a home. I wonder what Michal Martin would say to those people because I don't have an explanation for it. You see, I get um, accused uh, when I raise these questions of being unchristian. Um, and so, and this, by the way, is frequently by people who have a great detestation of the church. So this is simply just some kind of rhetorical um, uh, slight on their part, because, um, as I say, they basically don't like the church um, and normally attack me for trying to defend it or trying to say, but there's another side of the story here. Uh, so anyway, you know, this is so unchristian. Well, um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, um, a, a Christian democratic policy, let's simply call it that, um, has to look at the common good. I was saying this on last week's uh, podcast. It has to look at the needs of various groups, not just one group, and key to imbalance. And it has to say, well, okay, looking after the needs of this particular needy group, how will that affect the needs of this other needy group? And will it um, help, harm, hinder? Um, that's what a responsible government asks. That, to my mind, is what a Christian government would ask, uh, or simply a compassionate government would ask, a rational government would ask. Um, so there's nothing unchristian about wondering what impact will this policy have on all needy groups in the round? That's the question to be asked, and it's a question which is basically what you're talking about there, and putting to Hall Martin, the question that is not asked, as usual. Yeah, and once again, I think, I think this topic and our first topic on hate speech are connected in that there are people I speak to every day of the week. Um, either they write to me by email or I, I meet them in the local shop and they know who I am or whatever. And they, they say to me, you know, I, I think this, but like, you know, I, to be quiet about it. There's, an, you know, there's, there's a sense that you can't really ask these questions in public unless lest it be thought that you're the wrong kind of person with dangerous, edgy ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, we're coming to the end of our show. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. We did mean t- to talk about other topics as well, but we've we've run long enough. Uh, and if you're still listening, uh, then we're very grateful because it means you obviously uh, think that we're we're worth listening to. Um, but for now, I think, David, we'll leave it there. We'll be back next week and hopefully we'll catch up um, with the various things we didn't get to today. But um, anyway, 
I have been John McGurk. He's been David Quinn. This has been The Week That Really Was. We're very grateful to you for listening, and we will see you this time next week. <laughs>